Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Hello. Hello. (laughs) How are you, my friend? Oh, you know, (laughs) just living the dream. Yes. Working the grind. Hanging out in the AC. As always, as always. And yet somehow still sweating. Or is that just me? (laughs) My AC is cranked pretty low. I'm in a part that is not amazingly served by my air conditioning. And also I have to tone it down so you don't hear my fans and ACs like humming in the background (laughs) of the podcast. (laughs) So I have a nice, like, glow right now. I'm glowing. Yeah, a beautiful glisten. (laughs) Summer. But, you know, I'll be bitching in the winter, so I have to at least try to enjoy it. Yeah, I really live for that fall-spring zone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think fall a little bit more than spring, but... Yeah. Yeah, why is that? Fall is just something about fall i think it's a nice wind down and you know all of our western holidays are coming Mm -hmm. and then you like get to be chill for a little bit and i also think spring is a lot more unpredictable yeah that's true of how short-lived in either direction of winter or summer it might be yeah although in your part of the world things will get a little green for a short period of time before they get all brown again I do love that, the little green moment. (laughs) The green window (laughs) before it all turns to ashes. Oh, that is so damn true. (laughs) Uh, What what have we got going on? We're on episode 49, and we've tried to stop doing that annoying thing where we're like, episode 49, but holy shit, like, this is our last one before we roll over to 50. It's unbelievable to me. I'm so, I feel so proud. And the listeners keep listening. I know. And even more. And we keep being excited about it, which is awesome. We are very excited about it. Loving <laughs> You it. don't understand the conversations that Kirsten and I have <laughs> off pod uh, about you all, whoever you are. Yes. And all of this that we do, which is so interesting. And I fear that in my life, I like my life is very, you know, middle-aged soccer mom, as we once called it. And so my circle of who I, my orbit, I guess you could say, is pretty small. And so the people who are in my orbit, who I see occasionally, but not a lot, whenever I get the chance to talk to them the podcast comes up a lot and not just as trying to promote our podcast, but I'm just so interested in it. I talk about it all the time to anyone who will listen. And my family has pretty much stopped listening to me about <laughs> it. So <laughs> now it's like, oh, the person who I run into at the store and just whoever can't not listen to me. I'm trying to think of things I've done. Mm. Ain't a lot. <laughs> like activity things? I watch some TV, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Loot. We chatted about this off pod. You have to watch Loot. It's so good. 
And I'm excited to watch it. It is really good. I just finished The Old Man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me too. I've been watching that. I'm kind of surprised you are watching it. I didn't realize you were watching it. (laughs) Hey, yeah. I mean, some of it is just ludicrous, but I've let go of it. Like, the first time the really ludicrous stuff happened, I was just, like, disgusted. And I said to my husband, who's really into it because he loves loves, um, Jeff Bridges, I was like, this is just insane. Like, it's so ridiculous. I can't watch this. And then, of course, I kept watching it because it has, like, a nice vibe. It has, a mm-hmm. like, the atmosphere. It really captures an atmosphere. So there's stuff I really like about it that kept me watching. I was watching it with my brother, and I was like, this is written in the way somebody wishes they would speak. <laughs> like, it's, like, these intense sort of monologue conversations yeah. and, like, so articulate. And I was, like, really aware that it was a written script yeah because it's like humans don't talk like this right everyone can't be this intense and like quality speakers (laughs) yeah totally but i'd like to go on record i knew immediately in episode one that the twist yeah yeah i don't think it was episode one that i knew but i i was pretty sure like within a few yeah well, it might not have been one that I knew who, uh-huh. but I knew the second that I could hear the phone conversation, like uh-huh. it, it was as though the voice was trying to be hidden, like yeah. really slow and monotone. And I was like, this is a really weird. It was really weird. At first I thought, pattern. at first I thought, cause they also mix in like some ghosts and stuff. So at first I was mm-hmm. like, is this his imagination? Is he talking to no one? <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. also had that thought. Yeah. But it was like, okay, so they're purposefully hiding something here. Right. And then it was just sort of like, well, the next logical step is this would be the craziest So outcome. Okay, so you knew in episode one the first twist, but the second twist, the twist that just came in the finale, did you know that one? I had been assuming it. Yeah. Because, well, a few reasons, but... I, I, yeah, I, I had I had my guesses. Yeah, yeah, same, same. So, did you know it was supposed to be 10 episodes? I did see that, which, I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like maybe the end was a little rushed, but I don't know. I kind of liked it. Maybe one more episode, but 10 feels like it would have been dragging it out a little long. Yeah, I was, I finished it yesterday, so I was, like, reading about, um, his cancer yeah. and the treatments plus COVID. COVID, yeah. I was like, oh, dang, this show almost didn't happen. And I mean, even without cancer and without COVID, some of the stunts that he must have had to do, it's like, oh, my God, I'm trying to imagine my parents doing these stunts. and Yeah, how does a 71-year-old Jeff Bridges have a better body than I will have ever had in my life? <laughs> <laughs> when he was like, actually having a six-pack i was just like this is unbelievable i mean you know genetics life's unfair yeah and when it's your job but like was there any part that really like drove you crazy when you say part i mean like subplot or i mean the other cop 
Yeah. Yeah. It held good intrigue, but I, I'm with you on, like, the... Some was predictable, some was definitely unbelievable. The whole judging Amy part, like... Yes, I... What the fuck? It, it makes zero <laughs> sense. Zero sense. I was so angry. I was, like, yelling at the TV for basically every scene that she was in. I was just like, no, 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 none of this makes sense. This is so unbelievable. I could have done without that entire storyline. A thousand percent. And I mean, I I like her as an actress. It's nothing against her. It was just like, what and why? I just don't believe the character choices. Right. Right. And then also, he would for sure just kill her. Right. I mean. like one of the other twists. (laughs) All of it. All of it. Yeah. So that was the only part I was just like no 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 and i was like i can't get over this i'm sorry spencer like you're gonna have to go this one alone and then i just kept going (laughs) (laughs) but i hope that she's gone forever it's interesting that we unplanned just had a big chat about entertainment when the case today is all about yeah celebrity and entertainment and yeah and sometimes the pop culture comes before sometimes it comes after sometimes it's woven into the whole thing and this one is really one of those that's woven throughout Mm -hmm. and so interesting and i feel like we're gonna do our normal format today but i think that this is one that people don't really know that much about my I am people <laughs> before before you know doing the research for this yeah no clue that'll come up in mind about culture that I knew yeah and did not know anything about this yay cool cool all right so we're assuming that you've seen the title of the episode that you're listening to but if you haven't we're talking today about Roscoe Conkling Arbuckle, who was also known as Fatty Arbuckle, which was a moniker that he really wasn't too fond of, unsurprisingly. And you know, (laughs) you wouldn't love it if everybody was like, hey, fatty. Right. It would be maybe ironic if it happened to be a skinny person. Right, right. To also be a big guy. Yeah. Like, ugh. Yeah. But, you know, this was 100 years ago, so you could give people really, like, cruel nicknames, and that was totally fine. Bugsy. (laughs) Be like, if everybody knew me as Stretch. (laughs) I still feel like Stretch. Like, it would be annoying, but it's not fatty. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, Bugsy is, like, getting there. It's like, hey, Uggo. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Isn't it funny how ugly you are and we call you ugly? Oh, my God. Uh, I have a story about that for off pod, though. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. No idea what it is. <laughs> so Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was born on March 24th, 1887. So we're going way back here. And he was born in... Uh, Smith Center, Kansas, and he was one of nine children, which, holy shit, 
Um, too many. Too many. I mean, like, as a person who has created life and pushed life out of my body, nine is too many from that perspective. <laughs> but, you know, different strokes, people. So, yeah, so Roscoe was one of nine, and his mother was Mary Gordon, and his father was William Goodrich Arbuckle, and that will come back later, so remember that name. And Roscoe, which I'll call him just to be nice um, instead of fatty, but choose your, choose your nickname, he weighed almost 14 pounds when he was born, so he was always a big boy. And he was so big. Old. Yes. <laughs> 14. 14. And, you know, epidurals, not a thing. That seems really bad. Yeah. I mean, not unprecedented, but definitely highly unpleasant. Again, speaking from the mother's perspective. And, you know, his parents were just kind of average sized folks. And so he was so big that his dad didn't even believe that he was his. His dad immediately assumed that he was illegitimate. So as a result of that, Mr. William Goodrich Arbuckle, nice guy that he was, he named Roscoe after Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York, who was at the time, a notorious philanderer and someone who the father despised. So basically, Roscoe really started life in a very strong, positive way. <laughs> Not. <laughs> and of course, you know, the birth was super traumatic, like physically for Mary. And after that, she suffered from a lot of health problems, and it really kind of began the decline of her health that kind of ended in her death 11 years later. So Roscoe mm. was about 10. When he was about two, the family moved from Kansas to Santa Ana, California, which is in Southern California, near LA. And he began performing on stage when he was just eight and he really enjoyed performing. Um, but it was just kind of something that he did in his spare time. But when his mother died, like I mentioned earlier, his father basically abandoned him. He refused to support Ugh. him. Yeah. Again, he didn't believe that he was his and, so Roscoe was about 10 or 11, and from that point on, he essentially took care of himself. So he really kind of leaned into the performing. He would do odd jobs at a hotel, and his father had been in the hotel industry, so he kind of knew his way around that world. But he started doing odd jobs, but then he would also do different kind of little acts or whatever. And when he was doing these odd jobs, he had a, a little quirk where he would sing while he was working. And mm -hmm. apparently he had a really naturally beautiful voice. He hadn't had any training as a singer. But while he was doing this, a professional singer overheard him singing and encouraged his singing and encouraged him to enter into an amateur talent show. Now... 
again, it being olden times and you could kind of be cruel and mean and it wasn't a thing. He went into this show and the way it was done at that time was the performers would perform and then the crowd would either cheer if they liked you and then you went on to the next level or whatever. Or if they didn't like you, they would jeer at you and then they would pull you off stage with like a giant hook. Like Oh, so that's real? That's that's real. So it it was a shepherd's crook they're called, but those big kind of staff things that shepherds would carry, if you can make get a mental picture of that in your mind, the giant kind of um, like a walking stick, but tall and with a hook at the end. I'm making, <laughs> making arm signs as if you all can, and can see me, but they would take those and like pull people off stage and everybody would boo and hiss and all that. So he, he kind of did this and he danced and sang and like was, he was kind of a clown even as a child, but the audience wasn't very impressed with him. And so Uh the story goes that he was on stage and he saw this crook coming for him from the wings of the stage. And so he decided to jump and throw, he threw himself into the orchestra pit. And when he did that, then the audience went crazy and saw it as like physical comedy basically and uh-huh. went wild and cheered and he won that competition. And so that was kind of his first break into the business more formally and he started performing in vaudeville which Yeah. How would you describe vaudeville if we had to describe it to listeners who don't know what it is either from other countries or youngsters? I don't even know. <laughs> I'm going to look it up. It's, I mean, it's theater, but okay, here we go. It is a theatrical genre of variety entertainment born in France at the end of the 19th century. So comedy without psychological or moral intentions based on comical situations. So in a way, maybe like the precursor to sitcoms. Also, side note, uh, when are we going to create a reality competition where there is like a real big hook or like foam wrecking ball that when you get enough yes or no votes like something horrible happens (laughs) so little like dating myself here but in the 70s there was actually a show that i loved it was a variety show a competition it was called the gong show you need to look it up and find it on youtube but it was the same essential concept but there were three celebrity judges celebrity of the day and behind them was a giant gong. And so they would watch as someone performed. And then when they got sick of it, any judge at any time could get up and like bang the gong. And then they would, they had a crook that they would pull them off stage with it. Oh, man. <laughs> so, yeah, little insight into the 70s, not so different from the truly olden times. <laughs> <laughs> so, Roscoe, at this point, he's still in Southern California. He's, you know, doing his vaudeville thing. And in 1904, he was invited um, by a theater owner to come and sing in San Francisco at a new theater that was opening. And in time, he formed a friendship with this theater owner. And he joined a theater group and he started touring on the West Coast. He played at the Orpheum in Portland and again, was just very active in in the vaudeville circuit on the West Coast. 
1908, Roscoe met and married his first wife, whose name was Minta Durfee. And she had been in the business for quite a while at that point. And apparently they made kind of an odd couple. So by this point, I couldn't find a height on Roscoe. But at this point, he was weighing in at around 300 pounds. And by all accounts, Minta was very petite and very small. And so they kind of, you know, physically made this odd couple. But by all accounts, they were happy. Roscoe even did some touring in the Far East, in China and Japan. And then in 1909, he began his film career. And he appeared in his first movie that year. He also did kind of something called one reelers, which were just shorter kind of movie shorts, I guess. Um, and of course, this is all during the silent era. Mm-hmm. He had, had some appearances in Keystone Cop comedies. And this is really when his image as a performer was developing and he used his size as part of his comedy, but he was also known to not play to his size for cheap laughs, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, getting stuck in a door or getting stuck in a chair, those kinds of things. And, again, according to reports at the time, he was very nimble, so he was able to dance, he was able to do lots of types of physical comedy, and in a fairly short period of time he went from kind of making a few bucks a day as a as a studio employee to being a headliner and making a thousand dollars a day at that time which obviously would be a ton of money now so after a period of about four years with paramount pictures at that rate of a thousand dollars a day and also making a cut of the profits Paramount went to him in 1918 and they offered him what at the time was just an unprecedented contract. And that was a three-year, $3 million contract, which would be now over $50 million. Wow. Yeah. So here he is. He's 27. You know, he's living large. He's got loads of money. He and his wife, by this point, had kind of grown apart, but they were still married. And all was kind of on the rise. The only issue, though, that he had was he had some health problems at this point. He had developed an infection on his leg that got so bad at one point, they thought they might need to amputate. And they were able to avoid that. But it was during that time that he was first prescribed morphine. And in time, he developed an addiction to morphine. It's so crazy. Sorry for another tangent, but Mm. like, it's as though we don't learn, like thinking about morphine and then thinking about like oxy. Mm -hmm. And I know that was different because of like the Sackler family or maybe not that different, but like we get all that somewhat propaganda, somewhat reality and very good anti-drug stuff. And, like, it's never about the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. 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 I mean, you would think that we would learn. And, I mean, at this point, we're talking, we're, you know, 1918, almost 1920. It's not like it was the Victorian era where people kind of didn't know that opioids caused problems. This is not Sherlock Holmes times, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was known to be addictive. And... 
you know, he did. He developed an, an addiction. And during this time, it said that he was the second highest paid actor after this contract in silent movies in the U.S. at the time. So right after signing this contract, one of his friends named Fred Fishback convinced Roscoe to go to San Francisco with him and another friend, Lowell Sherman, and to really celebrate, to celebrate the contract, to celebrate his career, and just to kind of cut loose. At this point, Roscoe was separated from his first wife, and so I think he initially gave some resistance. Again, his health wasn't great. He wasn't feeling so good, you know, about to be going through a divorce. But in the end, his friends kind of were persistent enough and he agreed to go. So the three of them reportedly sailed from Los Angeles to San Francisco and they checked into the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. And what they did is they booked a, a group of rooms. They booked a suite, essentially. So they had one room for Roscoe and his friend Fred to share, another room for Lowell to have, and then a, a third room. The third room was the party room. And they were, you know, they were joined rooms. And then they invited, you know, friends, but also a lot of women to come mm -hmm. and essentially to party. Now, of course, this is during the prohibition, so alcohol was not legal at the time, but Fred somehow arranged to have a case of gin delivered to the room, and they were just, you know, planning to have a good time. So the morning after they arrived, Roscoe reportedly woke up at around 1030 in the morning, um, and he comes out into the shared area of the suite still in his pajamas and two women were already there they had already showed up for the party it was that kind of party they were going to do some day drinking one was a 26 year old actress named virginia rapp and the other was a companion named maud delmont now it later was discussed that they had been friends for a long time other reports say that they had only met like a couple of weeks earlier. But in any event, they came together, they were ready to party, and they started drinking shortly thereafter. At some point during this, and reports really vary, Virginia fell ill. So she was in room 219, which was the room that was for, our, for Roscoe and Fred that they were mm -hmm. sharing. Again, some people say that she complained of a stomach ache and Roscoe took her into the room, closed the door, locked it, and who knows what happened behind it. Other reports, namely from Roscoe himself, say that he went into the room, found her in the bathroom on the floor throwing up, and carried her to the bed in his room and brought others and was essentially never alone with her. But... Mm -hmm the reports are just, they're all over the place and lots of people's reports changed. So what happened was she was still not feeling well. She fell out of bed. Someone put her back in. Maud reportedly got another man who was Virginia's manager. His name was Al. 
came and was helping. She had a fever and was like writhing in pain. So they decided to give her an ice bath. So at that point, Maud and Al, her manager, undressed her, put her in the tub, cold bath, added ice, but that didn't help. It actually made the pain worse. So they take her out again. And at this point, they call the hotel doctor. This is several hours later. The hotel doctor comes and examines. And it's at this point that Maud tells the doctor that Roscoe had raped her friend. Now, again, reports vary. Maud says that Virginia told her this. Others, I think Al reported that he overheard Virginia say, it was him, he did this to me. Of course, Roscoe denied it. The doctor examined her at that time and found no evidence of rape. But something was going on with her, clearly. The doctor Mm -hmm. thought she had just drank too much. And so essentially advised them to have her sleep it off. At that point, he gave her morphine to calm her down. Mm -hmm. So she's still in the bed. She's, you know, not doing well. This goes on for a significant period of time. At some point during this, the three men who had gone to party decided, like, this is this is no fun. So they sail back to L.A. And Maud and Virginia stay in the room. And I think Al is still kind of in there. And then it's not until two days later, so two days after she was first found to be in tremendous pain, that she was finally taken to the hospital. Mm-hmm. At this point, they examine her again, and they find that she has a ruptured bladder, and within a fairly short period of time, she dies at the hospital. Now, the initial um, assessment by the doctors at the hospital is that she has peritonitis, which is an inflammation infection of the tissues lining around the stomach and I think also the uterus, but that it had been caused by the ruptured bladder. So the bladder ruptured kind of like went into her, you know, system and then became kind of a systemic infection. Yeah. Now, it was reported again later that she had suffered from chronic urinary tract infections, and that was something that was irritated a lot by drinking. So that was kind of one theory. But when they did the formal autopsy, the doctors said that the only way it could have happened was from something external, either pressure or punctured the bladder. So this is when this kind of theory came forward that Roscoe's size, he was on top of her in, in the act of assaulting her, and it had ruptured. Or there were also rumors, and I think this was mainly rumor, and there were no, there was no evidence to this fact that the he had assaulted her with an object of some kind, and that that potentially had ruptured her bladder. So a lot of theory, but not a lot of hard fact. And so what had happened was they really botched the autopsy. They started it in one place and had her stomach sent to one lab and then they had taken out her reproductive organs and maybe the bladder and had it sent someplace else and then someone had to Mm -hmm. come in the the 
like when this became cr a criminal concern, essentially someone else came in and said, okay, send everything back and we're going to do like a proper autopsy. But they, they couldn't say with any kind of certainty. They didn't see on her body evidence that looked or, or injuries that looked consistent with a rape. And so they really just couldn't explain it. They knew that it had burst, but they didn't really know why or how. Yeah. Now, it came out much later that doctors reported at, at the trial, which I'll get to in a moment, that it's so rare that a bladder could be ruptured externally, like from the weight of something on someone. But I think that there was a lot of fat phobia that was kind of wrapped up into this and his size mm -hmm. and she was small. And so that was kind of part of it. It was only within a day of her passing that Roscoe was arrested and he was brought back to San Francisco. They kind of did the investigation. And this is a hard one to report on because there's very little evidence. And of course, our stance is always believe women, believe victims. And Maude, the woman who Virginia had been with, was known as a as a madam um, in the area, but even more than that, she had a criminal record for essentially finding women for parties just exactly like this one, and then claiming that one or more of the girls had been raped by the people throwing the party. So this wasn't the first time, essentially, that she had made a claim that fit this exact scenario. And there's, like, believing the victim, there's not even real proof that she said anything right. at all. Right, So, like, like I, I so fully understand the, like, delicacy of mm -hmm. this line in this case because it really is unknowable at, at this point. I think so. And, you know, it's so long ago now that you read a lot of, disinformation and different information depending where you look apparently in some reports the doctors never heard her say that that she by the time the doctors got involved she really wasn't able to say much of anything and so it was only coming from Maud but then at one of the trials and again we'll get to that some of the doctors reported that she had said that but even if she said it was him he did this who's him like yeah and could be as simple as like the gin has poisoned me. Right, right, right. Yeah, definitely not conclusive. So that part of it was always kind of unknown. Again, he claimed that he had done nothing wrong, that he was really trying to help her He when he found her, whether it was he noticed that she wasn't well in the main suite or in the bathroom, and that changed over time. He was trying to help. Some people reported that and I think he reported at one time or other witnesses testified that he had tried rubbing ice on her stomach to ease the pain. But then that got twisted by the media as like he assaulted her with ice and then the ice could have punctured the bladder. I mean, it just is like just stories, you know, mixed with fact. Yeah, I mean, it was like not the trial of the century, but like the media TMZ before it existed like it, huge and like the fate of American purity and Christianity and the evils of Hollywood. And it was, I mean, everybody had an agenda in Absolutely. this con national conversation. Absolutely. 
So at the time, you know, he is arrested and then he's released on his own recognizance, but he's one of the biggest actors in the country at that time. So super well known, but unlike what happens a lot these days, the studios and the other actors were, they distanced themselves right away. And a lot of the actors did it because they were ordered to do so by the studios. And the studios at that time had a lot of control over people's careers. It's diff- It was different then than it is now. And so he was friends with Charlie Chaplin. He was friends and business partners with Buster Keaton, but they were told to not say a word and to not speak up for him. I think Buster Keaton did make one kind of statement, but then he got his hand slapped and he didn't say anything again after that. So the studio really just kind of abandoned him at that point. He was very wealthy, so he mounted a vigorous defense, but he had the poor luck of this happening in San Francisco, which is where William Randolph Hearst was located at the time with his uh, media, the beginnings of his media empire. And so he really sensationalized this case and ran stories about this just constantly. And they were, I think, by any kind of measure, really not not unbiased. They were mm-hmm. biased. <laughs> You know, portraying him as just as a really debauched kind of person, a party animal sexually with drugs, alcohol, again, it's during prohibition. And again, I think some of this fat phobia really bled into this because people are seeing this through the lens of, well, if he can't be moderate with what he eats and he's this size and he must not be moderate in any way. Like he's a a glutton essentially across Mm -hmm. all things. So I think there was a lot of fat phobia that contributed to how easy it was to sell this story to the public. Now, everyone who knew him well reported that he was good natured. He was affable, you know, just a really nice guy. Some even went so far as to call him, quote, the most chaste man in pictures. But it didn't really change the trajectory. Again, so many people who felt this way about him, including his first wife, weren't able to speak on his behalf. And so the prosecutor at the time in San Francisco just happened to be, again, in a stroke of bad luck for Roscoe, a really ambitious guy who was hoping to run for governor at one point. So he decides that this is going to be, you know, the case he's going to make his name on. Mm -hmm. So he reportedly starts pressuring witnesses as he's gearing up for the trial, the first trial. And again, this being a long time ago, the first trial happened fairly quickly. He was arrested on September 17th. And he spent some time in jail. He was released on his own recognizance. And then the first trial began the end of November, early December of that same year. So just like Mm -hmm. boom, 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 right? He, again, had a really vigorous defense. He called a witness who was another woman who was in attendance. And she testified on his behalf. 
His wife, who, as I said, was already estranged and began divorce proceedings not long after this all happened, she stuck by his side during the trial and said that there was no way that he would have harmed Virginia. She came to the courtroom on, the, on a regular basis. And just to give a sense of how whipped up the public was, she was the wife now, Minta, was actually shot at by someone in the public as she was walking into the courthouse one day. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember if I kept this in my notes or not, but like it is very similar to QAnon. Mm. What was happening at this time, like, mm-hmm. like the devil, like the people who think like Tom Hanks eats babies or whatever, like yeah. that was sort of the level that this was rising to. Yeah. The yellow journalism period. Mm-hmm. So during the first trial, Roscoe testified as the final witness in his own defense. And he reportedly, I mean, performed I don't know if that's the right word, but he performed well on the stand. He was direct. He was simple. He didn't get flustered by the questioning. And afterward, the jury um, deliberated for quite a long time. And ultimately, they came back and they it was a hung jury. There were 10 jurors and two alternates. And out of the 12, 10 voted to acquit and two voted to convict of manslaughter, uh, not murder. And so it was it was a mistrial in that first case. Now, one thing of note that I didn't realize, but as I was doing the research, I found that there were women and men on the jury in this case, and it had only been four years since women were allowed to serve on juries. Mm-hmm. And so that was definitely kind of a part of this as well, I think, of having a true jury of peers in terms of him, but also the victim and having women and their perspective on this case. So almost immediately after the first mistrial, they began a second trial and everything was more or less the same, except a new jury, same prosecutor, same defense attorney. But this time the defense kind of, I don't want to say they phoned it in, but I think they felt like they had really kind of perfected things that first time. And Mm -hmm. they knew the results that only two people had voted to convict. So they just weren't quite as vigorous. I keep saying the word vigorous. I'm going to just keep saying it. Well, and the prosecutor has something to prove Mm -hmm. and ambitions and yeah. Yeah. And so... They did work to, once again, as they had in the first one, really discredit Maud. But in this case, and I don't really know why, I could never find a reason for it, but they chose not to put Roscoe on the stand. I think they were just feeling very confident. And so they didn't put him on the stand. And when they sent them off to deliberate after about a two-week trial... They came back five days later, and they were deadlocked again. But this time, it was the complete opposite. So it was 10 who voted guilty and two who said not guilty. So after this, 
we now are into the beginning of 1922. So still super fast by today's standards, but we're going into the third trial, which began in March of 1922. And this time the defense obviously was not going to take any chances. They realized the mistake of not putting him on the stand and they were very aggressive. Now, one thing I hadn't mentioned is in the first two trials, the defense attorneys had wanted to bring up material about Virginia, that she was promiscuous, that she was, you know, had maybe had an abortion, like all kinds of stuff to discredit her. And Roscoe wouldn't allow it. He said that it wasn't right to speak ill of the dead. Mm -hmm. Well, now after the results of the second trial, it was like, okay, he could actually be convicted of this and go to jail for a very long time. And so he finally gave the okay for them to essentially pull no punches. Yeah. And they questioned people aggressively. They brought up Virginia's past. They brought up Maud's past and reputation. They brought up a lot of witnesses, some of whom had not testified in his defense who kind of changed their story. I mean, there was talk of them bribing or pressuring there was also talk of Mm -hmm. you know the district attorney pressuring it just sounds like it was a free-for-all essentially but then they brought roscoe on the stand again to close out this trial and in the end he was acquitted during this trial all of them agreed and really notably they only deliberated for six minutes before Mm. they came back with their verdict And it said that five of those six minutes were spent writing a formal statement of apology to Roscoe for putting him through the ordeal, which just like unheard of and super dramatic. And so I'm going to read from that statement right now. Quote, acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuncle. We feel that a great injustice has been done him. We feel also that it was only our plain duty to give him this exoneration under the evidence, for there was not the slightest proof adduced to connect him in any way with the commission of a crime. And then it goes on and on. But, you know, basically they felt like he deserved not only a complete exoneration, but an apology for what he had kind of gone through. And it meant a lot to him. He actually kept that statement as kind of a treasured belonging for the rest of his life. Well, he was like enemy number one. He was the villain of America. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And especially considering how murky, no evidence whatsoever, knowing that Maude had done things similar to the, what's alleged that she did here. Like it's just an insane situation. Yeah. Totally. Now, even though he got this exoneration, by the time the third trial was over, his career was completely in ruins. The studios not only weren't going to hire him, but they had started refusing to distribute movies he had already been in. So essentially, in today's terms, he was canceled, like, across the board. Mm -hmm. And... He had enough friends in the business that he was able to stay afloat. But at this point, he was out of money and he owed over $700,000, which would be 
about 12 million today in legal fees. So he was forced to sell all of his belongings and all of that. And he kind of did odd things in the business and his friends kind of watched out for him. I think Buster Keaton was a big one who had cut him into his production company and Mm -hmm. kind of gave him profits on things that he didn't really work on totally or, or contribute to too much. His wife then in 1923 officially filed for divorce on grounds of desertion, which from what I can tell, that's pretty much the equivalent of, um, you know, irreconcilable differences now. Mm -hmm. And it was granted, but they stayed in each other's lives and were friends for the rest of for the rest of his life. He married again two other times, but. He was, by all accounts, really a shell of a man after that. He did eventually do some work as a director under the pseudonym William Goodrich, which, if you remember back to the beginning, that was the name of his father. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have this, so I'll just cut it if you do. But, like, incidentally, a lot of his credits would be, like, will be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, like, a... I guess Joe as well. Yeah. Yeah. So he kind of worked like this, you know, for quite some time, many years like this in Hollywood, just getting by on, you know, the kindness of friends and work that he could catch here and there from his connections. But it sounds like before all of this happened, he was well liked in the community and those friends continue to watch out for him more or less, but certainly not living at the level that he had been before. In 1928, he invested in a cafe club um, that was near the MGM studios and he did that for a while. And then in 1932, he finally was able to shake some of the the cloud that had followed him around for the last decade. And he signed a contract with Warner Brothers to star as himself in a series of two real comedies. So again, still not feature length films, but some shorter films. And they were going to be filmed in Brooklyn. And he was kind of, you know, mounting the very beginnings of a comeback Then on June 28th, 1933, just as he had finished filming the last of those two reelers, he signed, the next day after filming ended, he signed another contract with Warner Brothers to star in a feature length film. And so this really represented him kind of moving out of that phase and starting fresh. So that night, he went out with his friends to celebrate. um, And it also happened to be his first wedding anniversary to his third wife and he reportedly had said quote this is the best day of my life end quote partied that night and went back to his hotel or where he was staying while in New York filming and he suffered a heart attack later that night and died in his sleep he was only 46 yeah it's an unbelievable story It really is. And, you know, as part of this, I really did try to dig in and find out more about Virginia Rapp because I don't like giving one-sided stories, but Mm -hmm. I just really could not find much about her. You know, 
what I could find is that she had had a hard childhood herself. She was essentially orphaned, ironically, at the same age that Roscoe was at age 11 um, when her mother died. And she started working in film and, you know, she was kind of a rising talent. She was also a model and was well known in that world. She and Roscoe knew one another. That wasn't the first night that they met. They had been in at least one film together and were familiar with one another. This also, though, came up later where a custodian at one of the studios where they had worked together had testified that Roscoe tried to bribe him to get a key to her dressing room and that he had refused to do it. Roscoe refuted that and there was never any proof other than what the custodian said. But again, they knew one another you know, whether he had some attraction to her or they had a fling. I mean, none of that is known. And I really can't find anything beyond that about Virginia. Um, You know, whatever it is, she certainly didn't deserve to die in that way. There was speculation after the fact, and I think quite a bit later, this didn't come up at any of the trials, and I alluded to it earlier, that potentially she had had an illegal abortion you know, in the days or week leading up to this and that she was suffering complications and that's what had happened. She was known, though, and Roscoe testified in one of the trials that she had, quote, become hysterical um, and was, like, clawing at her clothes and had kind of torn some off. And this is something that apparently she had a bit of a reputation for doing going to parties and getting quote hysterical and tearing her clothes off when she was drunk, which I mean, again, like when you look at it through the lens of how she died, it all sounds kind of sinister, but I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. people can get cray when they drink a lot, you know? And so just teasing apart, like what happened here and, you know, Maud having a reputation and I think a record for blackmail and extortion related to yeah. false rape claims. And so, I mean, it's just, it's really hard to know what happened. And then you add like the terrible journalism that was happening at the time and the media part of it, but then also his fame, which protected him in some ways, even though he was shunned. Like, it's just very complicated. Yeah, the pop culture side is complicated, too. I bet. I would warrant that a lot of folks don't know about Fatty Arbuckle, the mm-hmm. star. Yeah. I mean, clearly we've learned from you, like, huge, huge, one of the top celebrities in America. Yeah. And he's also historically one of the key figures in comedy. And mm-hmm. his influence on American slapstick is a genre and it like it's just widely recognized that it's led the way to the comedy that we consume today. Mm. And he also worked out new ways to film comedy. Mm. So like using unusual angles to emphasize jokes, experimented with point of view to involve the viewers more closely with characters, found ways to really exploit that technology. One of the things I read said that he like to show that somebody was like like not in their right mind like they blurred the f- 
footage, which feels like such a trope of like how to announce when like you're in a dream sequence. Right, or... right, right, right. Oh, interesting. I didn't really realize he was that on the technical side. So yeah, it's not just comedy as a genre. It's also like the production of comedy yeah. on film. So according to historian David Pearson, he helped pave the way for the successes of Benny Hill, John mm. Belushi, John Candy, Chris Farley, John Goodman. Mm. Mm. A, a Hollywood loves a, a stereotype. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he set that like big, burly male comedian, often paired with like a thin, attractive, either like woman or like the straight man mm-hmm. in the story. Right. So another interesting impact is how this case became the template for celebrity scandal. Mm. So it wasn't TMZ or Twitter. It was Hearst. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like really exploiting this to build your business, build your brand, your reputation to the point where it was legitimately QAnon level. Like you said, someone shooting at his wife who testified positively for him, like it was the equivalent of these people are like hidden pedophile rings and pizza shops. Like it was nuts. It's crazy. And then it's just that interesting thing that we see over and over again, like a famous actor accused of sexual assault, media eager to capitalize on the twist, the industry grappling with how to dispose of them. And then the flip side, they still get to come back. Right. <laughs> I mean, in this case, there is a chance maybe that he's innocent of that charge. But when I see like Mel Gibson and stuff. (laughs) Right, right. And they're like, oh, cancel culture, cancel culture. And it's like, well, Fatty was getting his chance to come back too. Right. So not delving too deep, but just a quick IMDb glance He had 168 acting credits, Mm -hmm. 133 director credits, and 38 writer credits. Wow. So granted, they were workhorses. A lot of these were short films, not features. Mm -hmm. But still, I mean, huge. And I mean, he only lived to 46. So all of that output and a relatively short life. And he, it was just sort of this thing of like, being at the forefront, like transitioning from vaudeville mm-hmm. into the industry as it was going. And then he was he was transitioning into talkies mm-hmm. as well. Like some of the work post the trials had been in um, filmless sound. And that was his contract as well. Like he was supposed to be the star of a feature length film was the one he was celebrating when he died. Mm-hmm. So what we do know is... That culture has continued to be inspired by him directly and probably even more so indirectly. Mm-hmm. But kind of sticking to the direct for a bit, Neil Sedaka references him along with Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Laurel, and Hardy in his 1971 song, Silent Movies. Mm-hmm. The 1975 James Ivory film, The Wild Party, has been repeatedly but kind of incorrectly cited as a film dramatization of the case itself. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is that it's loosely based on a 1926 poem, and the main character in the movie is based on Fatty. So in the film, James Coco portrays a heavyset silent film comedian named Jolly Grimm, whose career is on the skids, but's desperately planning a comeback. 
Raquel Welch plays his mistress who ultimately goads him into shooting her. So Mm. not the same plot, but the poem and the movie are still influenced by Arbuckle as a person. Yeah. And just incidentally, Mm. I attended a community theater production of The Wild Party, had no idea (laughs) about any of this connection and legitimately for years some like we talked in a previous episode about the weird stuff that's in your head and like yeah how the music gets there years now I will just randomly be like and we were having a wild wild party we were having a hell of a time (laughs) so funny so when I was like wait the wild party because i still didn't like fully connect it and then they're like and then it was a musical on broadway and i was like <gasps> wow that's wild that song that's in my head is connected to this case that i didn't know about so that was uh again the central thesis of our podcast yeah but it happened to me in real time researching this episode right right oh that's cool so Back to the culture. (laughs) And Ken Russell's 1977 biopic, Valentino, in the plot, like, Valentino dances in a nightclub before a grossly overweight, obnoxious, and hedonistic celebrity called Mr. Fatty, Mm. who was played by William Hootkins. And it was a caricature of Arbuckle, you know, rooted in the public view that was created in the press. Right. In the scene, Valentino picks up Starlet, Jean Acker, who is played by Carol Kane, off a table in which she's sitting in front of Fatty and dances with her, enraging a spoiled star who becomes apoplectic. Hmm. So really intense view of Fatty in this film. So uh, interesting. Mixed critical response, and it did. It was a British film, and it got three BAFTA awards, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, and Best Production Design. Hmm. So the caricature of Arbuckle as this intense, boorish, awful guy Mm -hmm. was so prominent leading up to the 60s and 70s that avant-garde filmmaker Kenneth Anger wrote wrote about it in his uh, book Hollywood Babylon Mm -hmm. as being like the history of old Hollywood and how it has you know influenced the culture so kind of similar some of the stories in that book have been refuted over time Mm -hmm. but it was so prominent that like the stereotype is acknowledged in writing in the 70s Mm, interesting and then just unexpectedly (laughs) transitioning over to children's entertainment MathNet a children's crime drama show from the late 80s and early 90s has an Arbuckle parody with fictitious deceased celebrity Roscoe Fatty Tissue (laughs) what (laughs) gross yeah so in an odd little crossover to our Christine Collins Wineville Chicken Coop episode this show MathNet is a pastiche of the TV show Dragnet oh got it Okay. So it was like a children's crime drama? (laughs) Yeah, weird. Uh, And also in kids' entertainment, in Gumby the movie. Oh my God. The supporting character, Fat Buckle, is a reference to Arbuckle. Yeah. So didn't expect to get into the the kids' (laughs) entertainment section. Right. Uh, In 2005, jazz trumpet player. Dave Douglas released the album Keystone, and it's dedicated to the work of Fatty Arbuckle. 
Hmm. Also contained a DVD which featured the 1916 movie Fatty and Mabel Adrift. Hmm. Which, quick side note, so a lot of his work is gone. Mm -hmm. Like, fully gone. Part of it comes down to the studios purposefully not preserving it. Part of it goes to time, but like only a handful of his things have been fully preserved and a lot of those are also connected with Buster Keaton. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to know exactly what would have happened if the studio had better preserved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, In April and May of 2006, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City mounted a 56-film month-long retrospective that showed that was the surviving work. So Mm -hmm. out of like 168, um, 56 survive. It's wild. He's the subject of a 2004 novel titled I Fatty by Jerry Stahl, Mm. which I couldn't, I was really trying to find out what inspired the name of the movie I, Tanya. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, oh, that's interesting. What an odd, but I, I couldn't find any connection, but who knows? Interesting. Yeah. And then a few more books, The Day the Laughter Stopped by David Yallop. And Frame Up, The Untold Story of Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle by Andy Edmonds are two other kind of influential books on Mm -hmm. his life. Mm -hmm. In fiction, you have the 1963 novel Scandal in Eden by Garrett Rogers. And that was a, you know, again, fictionalized version of the scandal. The 2009 novel Devil's Garden is based on the trials. The main character in the story is named Deshiel Hammett. Uh, Pinkerton detective in San Francisco at the time of the trials. So, mm, mm, yeah. Taking it from sort of that lens. Yeah. Stoneface, a 2012 play by Vanessa Claire Stewart, hit the stage, and that was about Buster Keaton, and it depicts his and Arbuckle's friendship. Mm. Friendship and professional relationship. Mm-hmm. He's played by actor Brett Ashby in the 2013 movie Return to Babylon. Mm-hmm. which I'd never heard of. It was alongside Jennifer Tilly, Debbie Mazar, and Tippi Hedren, mm-hmm. which I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so just very quick side note, random cocktail party banter. As I was looking into this movie, there was a full section on the Wikipedia entitled Reports of Paranormal Activity. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, so I guess it's something that the film's marketing played up. Uh, the notion that the film was haunted and they put out like media releases and interviews stating that the actors faces can be seen morphing into grotesque shapes and certain shots. Mm-hmm. There are reports of actors having elongated and webbed fingers, full bodied apparition, seeing the faces of dead actors like Lon Chaney manifest in shots <laughs> and shadows resembling skeletons and demons. Hmm. And many of the cast and crew confirmed the reports, but I mean, they also have every reason to lie to right. promote your film. Right, right, right. I, I did look at some of the shots, and they are really awful looking. <laughs> um, so my guess is it was an expensive hoax that didn't pan out because the movie wasn't very successful. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just as I was doing the research, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> That's just a whole other side thing for when you're um, when you're at your party and you need something to share. <laughs> but anyway, going back to the media, the scandal is described during the climax of the 2016 film 
Middleman, which starred Jim O'Hare as an unfunny aspiring stand-up comedian who picks up a mysterious hitchhiker. Hmm. The American punk rock band NoFX, their 2012 album, self-entitled, had a song called I Fatty, which was, of course, about Arbuckle. Yeah. And you can hear that on our Most Foul Music playlist on Spotify. Yeah. It's interesting. I listened to several of the songs, so they'll all be on there. Uh, The 2020 HBO remake of Perry Mason features a minor character named Chubby Carmichael, who's based on Arbuckle. (laughs) Fatty Arbuckles was an American-themed restaurant chain in the UK Mm -hmm. (laughs) named after him. Yeah, so wild. mm, I'm trying to think of how I have my notes structured. I'll just go into that now. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) That is so (laughs) weird. (laughs) The first franchise opened in 91, and by 96, there were 30 of them. In the UK? Yeah. The flagship location was in the West End, but there was like London, Tottenham, Glasgow, Birmingham, Cardiff, Oxford, Liverpool, Belfast, and many, many more cities. (laughs) So this was like a thing. Yeah, it's wild. (laughs) Like... So is it still around? Well, so the chain sold for an undisclosed amount in the 2000s. The last location closed in 2006, but then the name was bought out and a new restaurant opened in Norfolk in 08. And then another, it franchised out in 2017 as well. So there's two of them that I could find. (laughs) So interesting. I wonder like what the kind of premise is well it was big portions low prices <laughs> got it that's uh, that was part of it being an american restaurant american themed but then so, yeah. again i mean it's that like fat phobia is just so like baked in all assumptions about you know 100 percent. and listeners uh specifically our uk listeners If any of you have ever dined at one of these restaurants, let us know how it was. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm like doing a little Google, Google-licious right now to see. So jumping back to the culture, the most recent thing I found was a 2021 French graphic novel, Fatty, Le Premier Roy de Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) And it portrays the period of Arbuckle's early days in Hollywood to his death. And now something that doesn't come up often, but it came up a lot in my research. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the culture that could have been made. Yeah. So before his death in 1997, comedian Chris Farley expressed interest in starring as Arbuckle in a mm. biography film. Mm. And so according to the 2008 biography, The Chris Farley Show, a biography in three acts, Farley and screenwriter David Mamet agreed to work together on what would have been his first dramatic role as Fatty Arbuckle, and Mm. the movie signed Vince Vaughn to co-star. So it didn't happen. Chris Farley died. Yeah. As Buster Keaton? I wonder... That was my guess. I, I didn't see it. But incidentally, John Belushi and John Candy also both considered doing an Arbuckle biopic before they died. So weird. And then just randomly in 2007, director Kevin Connor planned the film The Life of the Party based off of Arbuckle's life. And that was supposed to star Chris Kattan, Preston Lacey, and then that got shelved. Huh. 
And most recently, we learned from Rob Zombie, of all people, Mm. that Louis Anderson was hoping to collaborate with him on a Fatty Arbuckle project. So after Louis passed at the beginning of this year, Rob Zombie said in an interview, quote, sad to hear about Louis Anderson. About five years ago, Louis called me up to work together on a Fatty Arbuckle biopic starring him as Fatty. We started developing it, but like most projects, it never came to be. He was a good dude, end quote. But like he was much older. Louis Anderson was like 70 when he died, wasn't he? Yeah, but I think, you know, you could. You could just do it. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I would be interested to see a Rob Zombie take on Fatty Arbuckle's life. Yeah. (laughs) And also maybe heavier set male comedians should never try to do this biopic. I know. Like, this feels like curse-ish. But not keeping us in the the paranormal world for too long. (laughs) There was... Another thing that arose from this scandal that has profoundly affected pop culture, and that is Hollywood censorship. Mm -hmm. The Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, MPPDA, formed in 1922 to reassure America that Hollywood did not condone immorality in the wake of the lifestyle scandals from the newspaper headlines so those like fatty arbuckle story was a huge piece of this Hmm. eventually hollywood studios banded together under former postmaster general will hayes to come up with a list of 36 self-imposed don'ts and be carefuls Mm. so there weren't penalties no laws no enforcement and the movie industry was policing itself and this was out of financial interest Mm. because like I said, this was like a QAnon type of fervor. Mm-hmm. And so major film studios were governed by a production code requiring that their pictures be, quote, wholesome and, quote, moral and encouraged what the studio called, quote, correct thinking. Will Hayes' name would later become synonymous with the Hollywood code era. His mm-hmm. work resulted in general guidelines, not enforcement, but his name is associated with it either way because he was the first person assigned to the task. Mm -hmm. So the code underwent a number of revisions through the fifties, but at its core were the general principles that quote one, no picture shall be produced, which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin Two. Correct standards of life, subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment, shall be presented. Three, law, natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. End quote. So, fucked up. Yeah, that's crazy. Additionally, there were prohibitions on films displaying, among other things, scenes of nudity, suggestive dancing, discussion of sexual perversity usually same-sex relationships, superfluous use of liquor, ridicule of religion, and miscegenation or interracial relationships between white and black people, and lustful kissing. (laughs) So essentially, this case deeply affected us in a profound societal way, which, ding, 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 dissertation topic. Totally. This this case led to the whitewashing, Christian washing, Puritanism of our society, 
with a lot of this nonsense. And again, this is my own thought, no research, but I'd hazard this is why Europe doesn't have the sexual connection to nudity on screen Mm -hmm. that we do. Mm -hmm. Like these, uh, like it's no wonder there's a diversity problem in Hollywood. This forced, like only good white people Right. Good straight white people living their good lives. And you can never talk bad about the laws. You can never like talk bad about the police. It's like, and no like, wonder. Not just the human laws, the natural laws too, because <laughs> there are laws that are not human. And queer people have always been artists. Like they've all been through the like Hollywood machine and different roles and capacities. And it's like, absolutely not. Can you show... Yeah. And then people are still mad today that, like, acknowledging a queer person exists right. on film, having black people in the new Lord of the Rings show. It's like the racism, homophobia, mm-hmm. just white Christian evangelical awfulness that we're surrounded by well, kind just, of comes back to here in a lot of horrible ripple effects. I wonder, though, is this just codifying what was already the unwritten rule? Or is this the building of it as a backlash to the case? Like, could you find any kind of real evidence there? So it was more open before. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the 50s were an incredibly dark time. Yeah. You know, with the Red Scare, like the government overreach blacklisting people Mm -hmm. uh purging queer people from government like so like there were actively queer people in hollywood and like purges happened there as well so i i think it would have happened without fatty but it's a direct yeah tipping point so yeah i mean a random restaurant chain in the uk a song from musical theater that randomly pops in my head societal censorship of immoral lifestyles and the world of slapstick comedy are all deeply connected ripples from this case this case that so many people have never heard of which i love that combination of a case that i mean it's not obscure by any means but like a really lesser known case considering all the facts and like this really huge impact i love that combination well and why isn't there a movie like i could understand today why you wouldn't want to necessarily have a inspection of the nuance of sexual assault but i mean you could do like a the staircase approach where it's like this could have happened this could have happened and like we don't know for sure and like exploring all the different possibilities kind of treatment but it's it's just wild to me that no one has made this movie yeah yeah for sure and maybe intentional yeah yeah i mean it's very interesting it's interesting the comedians who are interested in it and what their motivations would be and like what kind of story they were thinking of telling but you know, there's just, there's a lot of nuance to it and no clear kind of good guy, bad guy kind of situation, just a lot of gray Mm -hmm. and a lot of unknown, but so interesting. And that time is really so interesting too. Like you said, at the very beginning of, 
of a whole industry and how these players were shaping, you know, what we know today. Yeah. I mean, especially the transition of comedy. Yeah. Into film at all, like what that meant. And I mean, Buster Keaton helped him a lot and he also helped Buster like, yeah. And for whatever reason, unless you're like really into film history, like I, I would guess like people could identify Buster Keaton, like five to one to the name Ross. Well, you wouldn't do Roscoe, but like fatty Arbuckle. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I mean, again, it's hard to like say, but I would say definitely most young people have no idea, but then even as you get to people my age, Maybe they've heard it. Maybe they just know of the restaurant. Like, I actually knew of the restaurant, even though I don't live in the UK. <laughs> and, like, the name Fatty Arbuckles as a restaurant. I thought we had them here, too. But, but yeah, I would say you have to get, like, to my parents' age. Like, you have to get into the boomer crowd before more people are going to have heard of him than not, I think. I would love to go to that restaurant. <laughs> Me too. Although I just looked them up. They have a really shitty logo and I'm very, Mm. very like swayed by good or bad logos. I went to a Texas themed restaurant in Estonia. (laughs) It was wild. (laughs) It's so funny because we are the same person, even though we identify some differences like rain. Um, (laughs) Because I went to a Texas-themed restaurant in London. <laughs> I was like, I just need a cheeseburger, like a real one. <laughs> and it was wild. So, like, the servers were all really excited because they were getting they were getting ready to go on their yearly trip to Texas. <laughs> no, really? Oh, my God. And, like, the food was okay. Yeah. You know, the seasoning was uh, not, not there. <laughs> but it was so interesting to see the the version of what they thought a texas restaurant is yeah i love that and i for whatever reason i've also gotten mexican food every country i've gone to just to see it's like this horrible little game i play with myself (laughs) because a lot of them are really terrible yeah (laughs) oh my god that's so funny but yeah Yeah. now i'd really like to know more about fatty arbuckle the restaurant (laughs) Quite a long reach. I mean, he's probably rolling over in his grave somewhere, like, to have a restaurant that's themed basically around excess that's named after him. And it's, like, pretty rude. But also, there's something catchy about the words fatty and Arbuckle together. (laughs) And imagine all just the, like, the young Brits who's, like, only connection is this restaurant from their like childhood right right totally well it's kind of like howard johnson's like who the fuck was howard johnson i mean there probably was a guy named howard johnson but you just hear it so much in the context of like a restaurant and motel that it's lost its meaning as a name it's just howard johnson's you know do you know what I'm talking about? You have like I have heard of that, and then I was trying to figure out if that was like Magic Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> like, is this just a thing I've created in my own head with no? So Howard Johnson, it's kind of like a friendlies or like a fast casual level, but then they were also they had motels. I think motels or hotels. I'm not sure or motor lodges, something like that. 
But then even when the hotel, motel, motor lodge thing part went away, they still had the restaurants in some places for a while. Ah, more than a thousand franchises. Mm-hmm. And then in maybe the first example of this, which would be an interesting thing to dig into, not as a full dissertation, but maybe as like a paper, they were known as Hojo. And I think that predates Soho, but I'm not sure. But that would be interesting. So people called them Hojos. In 1999, Howard Johnson was inducted into the Hospitality Industry Hall of Honor. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Something that Fatty Arbuckles could aspire to if they <laughs> come back. <laughs> yeah, so just a little trivia here for you. We're just trying to keep it, keep it diverse. Keep well, your knowledge diverse. This one was great. I I learned so much. Absolutely. And as always, you know, we talk about some disturbing things. So we've got some resources in the show notes. So um, check those out if needed and take care of yourself. And we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Tally-ho. <laughs> <laughs> head over to Apple Podcast and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 